Hello, I'm Richard Burnip. To say that Charles Dickens was busy as he approached Christmas 1856 is probably a bit unnecessary, really, because there scarcely seems to be any time in Dickens's life when he wasn't ferociously busy. This is the man who, in his mid-twenties, riding on the first crest of success with Pickwick Papers, was writing the second half of that at the same time that he was writing the first half of Oliver Twist. So he could certainly do a great deal of work and keep his mind on a number of different projects all at once. It's one of his great strengths. It's also, I think, part of Dickens's makeup that he could hear the clock ticking all the time. He had to do as much as he possibly could in whatever time was permitted to him. As he approached Christmas 1856, he was working on the later stages of Little Dorrit, which was being serialised at the time, but clearly working on one hugely complex masterpiece wasn't enough for Dickens at this point. So he was engaged, desperately, passionately engaged, in working on a play written by his friend and colleague Wilkie Collins, but Dickens was taking charge of almost every aspect of the production as well as playing the leading role. And this is the play The Frozen Deep, which would be performed initially in Tavistock House, where Dickens was living at the time in London, in January of 1857. But that was absorbing a huge amount of his attention. And the play was a tremendous success and was performed in various venues later in 1857, including before Queen Victoria. He was also, of course, editing Household Words, the weekly journal conducted by Charles Dickens. Well, Household Words had set a tradition by that point for producing an extra Christmas number every year that Dickens would supervise and that usually had a linking theme that allowed Dickens and several other contributing writers to tell a variety of stories under an umbrella. Uh, the guests at the Christmas dinner, for example, who all get up and tell a story. He came up with a very interesting formula for Christmas 1856, and that was the wreck of the Golden Mary. And in a little while, I'd like to share with you the first part of Dickens's contribution to that story. The concept, in a way, is a brilliant one. A ship is wrecked on an iceberg in the South Atlantic, near the tip of South America. And the passengers and crew get into the two surviving boats. Uh, one of the boats has, has been destroyed, but they, they cram into the other two. And they are adrift, but trying to steer a course and trying desperately to get back to some kind of land. In the course of this dramatic struggle for survival, we have two narrators in the section that I'm going to read for you in a bit, which is the section written by Dickens at the beginning. We have Captain Ravender, and we have John Steadyman, who's his first mate. And they are in charge each, after the wreck, of one of the boats. And one of the things that happens in the boats is that to beguile the time and to raise the spirits, the passengers and crew tell stories. It's a, it sounds ridiculously simple as a concept, but I think it's a brilliant one. Uh, in straightened circumstances, 
people sing and tell stories. One of the passengers in the captain's boat has a beautiful voice and, and she sings for them as much as she can. And the stories that are told by the passengers are the framework of that Christmas issue of Household Words. And as with so many of his works, long and short, great and small, Dickens wasn't just writing with an idea for an entertaining story, he was writing with a purpose. Few people, few writers certainly, have ever been fired up with outrage in the way that Dickens was and put it to such brilliant use. He does this over and over again, whether it's dealing with the British legal system, whether it's dealing with child labour, all, all the topics that Dickens has covered in his writings. And in The Wreck of the Golden Mary, one of the reasons he wrote it was the same reason that The Frozen Deep was such a passionate project for him. And that's because of news that had, at that point, recently emerged about the missing expedition of Sir John Franklin, famously set out in the ships, the Erebus and the Terror, to find the Northwest Passage. And when nothing had been heard of them for some time, other expeditions and other explorers went out to try and find what had become of them. And modern historians have pieced together a huge amount about what happened to the expedition in the end. But in the early 1850s, this was all still very vague and nobody really had anything concrete. And a brilliant Scotsman, who was an explorer, who was a surgeon called John Ray, who did many, many fascinating and hair-raising things in his life, he had brought back evidence that he'd found in 1854 that was the first concrete evidence about the fate of Franklin's expedition. And because Ray had gathered some of his evidence from the native Inuit population, he was able to present information that a party of Franklin's men had, had been seen and that a number of them had later been seen dead and that there was evidence that in the last stages of their distress they had resorted to cannibalism. And when this aspect of the report was made public, there was a great deal of shock and outrage around it, and Dickens participated in that. And although in many respects Dickens isn't a typical 19th century Englishman by any means, a lot of his views and quite a lot of his responses to events were typical of the period, including his outraged reaction to this news when it was leaked. In The Wreck of the Golden Mary, though, he does something tremendously clever, I think, with this outrage. He doesn't make that the central point of his agenda at all, but he puts in a piece of historical information when cannibalism was also a possibility that had been spoken of and makes it a feature of the captain's account of the voyage in the open boat. And the historical precedent that he quotes is nothing to do with Franklin. It's much further back and actually much more well-known, at least in, in the popular imagination, and that is the famous mutiny on the bounty. When the mutineers cast Captain Bly and the remnant of the crew that remained loyal to him adrift uh, to almost certain death, but of course they didn't die. And as you'll hear if you listen on, 
Dickens works this in brilliantly into the narrative. He, he, he's not banging the table and shouting for your attention. He's, he's working it in and then he moves on to something else, but he's made his point from his perspective, or rather from Captain Ravender's perspective. Although, as well as the crew of the Golden Mary, there are 20 passengers on board, Dickens focuses on just a handful who become the main characters in the narrative. And there are a few characters who the other writers in that Christmas edition will pick and use for their stories. There are one or two characters who are introduced and then disappear and we never hear any more of them, including Captain Ravender's Black Steward, who's given the name Tom Snow in the story. He's introduced. You think for a moment that Dickens is setting him up so that he'll be a character who's given a narrative voice a little bit later on, and I think it's rather disappointing that he isn't. There are a lot of resonances in the story that if you've recently read or listened to A Christmas Carol, you'll find little echoes from that. So one of the passengers, Mr. Rax, R-A-R-X, is how it's actually spelt by Dickens, a wonderful one of his inventive names. Mr. Rax is a very strange man and largely misanthropic and a little bit Scrooge-like in some respects, but a very complex and mysterious character. There are other little echoes as well. It has the death of a child, the fortitude of women, the memory of a long-lost love, and the belief in personal redemption, all of which you'll find in A Christmas Carol, of course. And since the crew of the good ship London Walks have collectively sailed through some fairly choppy waters, like pretty much everyone has in the last couple of years, and are still out there guiding every single day of the year, I think it's rather nice that there are a number of references in the early part of the story to the City of London, in fact several, that you'll be familiar with from A Christmas Carol and perhaps from the Christmas Carol Walk. We're in the area of Leadenhall Street and Cornhill and the Royal Exchange, where a key scene early in the story takes place. Uh, this, by this point, was the finished version, the third version of the Royal Exchange in the City of London, which is still there today. And after I decided to record this, it occurred to me that it's a story I'd like to record from a purely personal point of view, for one thing above all else. There are not many of Dickens's narrators who were born and raised in the north of England, have lived in the south of England for quite a long time, and who are in the fifties. It's the only thing I have in common with Captain William George Ravender of the Golden Mary. The Wreck I was apprenticed to the sea when I was twelve years old, and I have encountered a great deal of rough weather, both literal and metaphorical. It has always been my opinion, since I first possessed such a thing as an opinion, that the man who knows only one subject is next tiresome to the man who knows no subject. Therefore, in the course of my life, 
I have taught myself whatever I could, and although I am not an educated man, I am able, I am thankful to say, to have an intelligent interest in most things. A person might suppose, from reading the above, that I am in the habit of holding forth about number one. That is not the case. Just as if I was to come into a room among strangers, and must either be introduced or introduce myself, so I have taken the liberty of passing these few remarks, simply and plainly, that it may be known who and what I am. I will add no more of the sort than that my name is William George Ravender, and that I was born at Penrith, half a year after my own father was drowned, and that I am on the second day of this present blessed Christmas week of 1,856, 56 years of age. When the rumour first went flying up and down that there was gold in California, which, as most people know, was before it was discovered in the British colony of Australia, I was in the West Indies trading among the islands. Being in command, and likewise part owner of a smart schooner, I had my work cut out for me, and I was doing it. Consequently, gold in California was no business of mine. But by the time when I came home to England again, the thing was as clear as your hand held up before you at noonday. There was Californian gold in the museums and in the goldsmith's shops, and the very first time I went upon change, I've met a friend of mine, a seafaring man like myself, with a Californian nugget hanging to his watch chain. I handled it. It was as like a peeled walnut with bits unevenly broken off here and there and then electrotyped all over, as ever I saw anything in my life. I am a single man. She was too good for this world and for me, and she died six weeks before our marriage day. So, when I am ashore, I live in my house at Poplar. My house at Poplar is taken care of and kept shipshape by an old lady who was my mother's maid before I was born. She is as handsome and as upright as any old lady in the world. She is as fond of me as if she had ever had an only son and I was he. Well do I know, wherever I sail, that she never lays down her head at night without having said, Merciful Lord, bless and preserve William George Ravender, and send him safe home through Christ our Saviour. I have thought of it in many a dangerous moment, when it has done me no harm, I am sure. In my house at Poplar, along with this old lady, I lived quiet for best part of a year, having had a long spell of it among the islands, and having, which was very uncommon in me, taken the fever rather badly. At last, being strong and hearty, and having read every book I could lay hold of right out, I was walking down Leadenhall Street in the city of London, thinking of turning to again, when I met what I call Smithick and Watersby of Liverpool. I chanced to lift up my eyes from looking in a ship's chronometer in a window, and I saw him bearing down upon me, head on. It is personally neither Smithick nor Watersby that I hear mention, nor was I ever acquainted with any man of either of those names, nor do I think that there has been any one of either of those names in that Liverpool house for years back. But 
It is, in reality, the house itself that I refer to, and a wiser merchant or a truer gentleman never stepped. My dear Captain Ravender, says he, of all the men on earth I wanted to see you most. I was on my way to you. Well, says I, that looks as if you were to see me, don't it? With that, I put my arm in his and we walked on towards the Royal Exchange, and when we got there, walked up and down at the back of it, where the clock tower is. We walked an hour and more, for he had much to say to me. He had a scheme for chartering a new ship of their own, to take out cargo to the diggers and emigrants in California, and to buy and bring back gold. Into the particulars of that scheme I will not enter, and I have no right to enter. All I say of it is that it was a very original one, a very fine one, a very sound one, and a very lucrative one beyond doubt. He imparted it to me as freely as if I had been a part of himself. After doing so, he made me the handsomest sharing offer that ever was made to me, boy or man, or I believe to any other captain in the Merchant Navy, and he took this round turn to finish with, Ravender, you are well aware that the lawlessness of that coast and country at present is as special as the circumstances in which it is placed. Crews of vessels outward bound desert as soon as they make the land. Crews of vessels homeward bound ship at enormous wages, with the express intention of murdering the captain and seizing the gold freight. No man can trust another, and the devil seems let loose. Now, says he, you know my opinion of you, and you know I am only expressing it, and with no singularity, when I tell you that you are almost the only man on whose integrity, discretion, and energy, etc., etc., for I don't want to repeat what he said, though I was and am sensible of it. Notwithstanding my being, as I have mentioned, quite ready for a voyage, still I had some doubts of this voyage. Of course I knew without being told that there were peculiar difficulties and dangers in it, a long way over and above those which attend all voyages. It must not be supposed that I was afraid to face them, but in my opinion a man has no manly motive or sustainment in his own breast for facing dangers unless he has well considered what they are, and is able quietly to say to himself, None of these perils can now take me by surprise. I shall know what to do for the best in any of them. All the rest lies in the higher and greater hands to which I humbly commit myself. On this principle, I have so attentively considered, regarding it as my duty, all the hazards I have ever been able to think of in the ordinary way of storm, shipwreck and fire at sea, that I hope I should be prepared to do in any of those cases whatever could be done to save the lives entrusted to my charge. As I was thoughtful, my good friend proposed that he should leave me to walk there as long as I liked, and that I should dine with him by and by at his club in Pall Mall. I accepted the invitation, and I walked up and down there, quarter-deck fashion, a matter of a couple of hours, now and then looking up at the weathercock, as I might have looked up aloft, and now and then taking a look into Cornhill, as I might have taken a look over the side. All dinner-time, and all after dinner-time, we talked it over again, 
I gave him my views of his plan, and he very much approved of the same. I told him I had nearly decided, but not quite. Well, well, says he, come down to Liverpool tomorrow with me and see the Golden Mary. I liked the name. Her name was Mary, and she was golden if golden stands for good. So I began to feel that it was almost done when I said I would go to Liverpool. On the next morning but one we were on board the Golden Mary. I might have known, from his asking me to come down and see her, what she was. I declare her to have been the completest and most exquisite beauty that ever I set my eyes upon. We had inspected every timber in her, and had come back to the gangway to go ashore from the dock basin, when I put out my hand to my friend. Touch upon it, says I, and touch heartily. I take command of this ship, and I am hers and yours, if I can get John Steadyman for my chief mate. John Steadyman had sailed with me four voyages. The first voyage John was third mate out to China, and came home second. The other three voyages he was my first officer. At this time of chartering the Golden Mary he was aged thirty-two, a brisk, bright, blue-eyed fellow, a very neat figure and rather under the middle size, never out of the way and never in it, a face that pleased everybody and that all children took to, a habit of going about singing as cheerily as a blackbird and a perfect sailor. We were in one of those Liverpool hackney coaches in less than a minute, and we cruised about in her upwards of three hours, looking for John. John had come home from Van Diemen's Land barely a month before, and I had heard of him as taking a frisk in Liverpool. We asked after him, among many other places, at the two boarding houses he was fondest of, and we found he had had a week's spell at each of them, but he had gone here and gone there, and had set off to lay out on the main top-gallant yard of the highest Welsh mountain, so he had told the people of the house, and where he might be then, or when he might come back, nobody could tell us. But it was surprising, to be sure, to see how every face brightened the moment there was mention made of the name of Mr Steadyman. We were taken aback at meeting with no better luck, and we had wore ship and put her head for my friends, when, as we were jogging through the streets, I clapped my eyes on John himself, coming out of a toy shop. He was carrying a little boy, and conducting two uncommon pretty women to their coach, and he told me afterwards that he had never in his life seen one of the three before, but that he was so taken with them on looking in at the toy shop while they were buying the child a cranky Noah's Ark, very much down by the head, that he had gone in and asked the lady's permission to treat him to a tolerably correct cutter there was in the window, in order that such a handsome boy might not grow up with a lubberly idea of naval architecture. We stood off and on until the lady's coachman began to give way, and then we hailed John. On his coming aboard of us, I told him very gravely what I had said to my friend. It struck him, as he said himself, amidships. He was quite shaken by it. Captain Ravender, were John Steadyman's word, such an opinion from you is true commendation. 
and I'll sail round the world with you for twenty years if you hoist the signal, and stand by you forever. And now, indeed, I felt that it was done, and that the Golden Mary was afloat. Grass never grew yet under the feet of Smithick and Watersby. The riggers were out of that ship in a fortnight's time, and we had begun taking in cargo. John was always aboard, seeing everything stowed with his own eyes, and whenever I went aboard myself early or late, whether he was below in the hold, or on deck at the hatchway, or overhauling his cabin, nailing up pictures in it of the blush roses of England, the bluebells of Scotland, and the female shamrock of Ireland, of a certainty I heard John singing like a blackbird. We had room for twenty passengers. Our sailing advertisement was no sooner out than we might have taken these twenty times over. In entering our men, I and John, both together, picked them, and we entered none but good hands, as good as were to be found in that port. And so, in a good ship of the best build, well-owned, well-arranged, well-officered, well-mannered, well-found in all respects, we parted with our pilot at a quarter past four o'clock in the afternoon of the 7th of March, 1851, and stood with a fair wind out to sea. It may be easily believed that up to that time I had had no leisure to be intimate with my passengers. The most of them were then in their berths, seasick. However, in going among them, telling them what was good for them, persuading them not to be there but to come up on deck and feel the breeze, and in rousing them with a joke or a comfortable word, I made acquaintance with them, perhaps, in a more friendly and confidential way from the first than I might have done at the cabin table. Of my passengers I need only particularise, just at present, a bright-eyed, blooming young wife, who was going out to join her husband in California, taking with her their only child, a little girl of three years old, whom he had never seen, a sedate young woman in black, some five years older, about thirty as I should say, who was going out to join a brother, and an old gentleman, a good deal like a hawk, if his eyes had been better and not so red, who was always talking morning, noon and night about the gold discovery. But whether he was making the voyage thinking his old arms could dig for gold, or whether his speculation was to buy it, or to barter for it, or to cheat for it, or to snatch it anyhow from other people, was his secret. He kept his secret. These three and the child were the soonest well. The child was a most engaging child, to be sure, and very fond of me, though I am bound to admit that John Steadyman and I were born on her pretty little books in reverse order, and that he was captain there and I was mate. It was beautiful to watch her with John, and it was beautiful to watch John with her. Few would have thought it possible to see John playing at Bow Peep round the mast, that he was the man who had caught up an iron bar and struck a Malay and a Maltese dead, as they were gliding their knives down the cabin stair aboard the bark Old England, when the captain lay ill in his cot off Soga Point. But he was. 
and give him his back against a bulwark, he would have done the same by half a dozen of them. The name of the young mother was Mrs. Atherfield, the name of the young lady in black was Miss Colshaw, and the name of the old gentleman was Mr. Rarks. As the child had a quantity of shining fair hair, clustering in curls all about her face, and as her name was Lucy, Steadyman gave her the name of the Golden Lucy. So we had the Golden Lucy and the Golden Mary, and John kept up the idea to that extent as he and the child went playing about the decks, that I believe she used to think the ship was alive somehow, a sister or companion, going to the same place as herself. She liked to be by the wheel, and in fine weather I have often stood by the man whose trick it was at the wheel, only to hear her sitting near my feet, talking to the ship. Never had a child such a doll before, I suppose, but she made a doll of the Golden Mary, and used to dress her up by tying ribbons and little bits of finery to the belaying pins, and nobody ever moved them, unless it was to save them from being blown away. Of course I took charge of the two young women, and I called them my dear, and they never minded, knowing that whatever I said was said in a fatherly and protecting spirit. I gave them their places on each side of me at dinner, Mrs. Atherfield on my right, and Miss Colshaw on my left, and I directed the unmarried lady to serve out the breakfast, and the married lady to serve out the tea. Likewise, I said to my black steward in their presence, Tom Snow, these two ladies are equally the mistresses of this house, and do you obey their orders equally? At which Tom laughed, and they all laughed. Old Mr. Rarks was not a pleasant man to look at, nor yet to talk to, or to be with, for no one could help seeing that he was a sordid and selfish character, and that he had warped further and further out of the strait with time. Not but what he was on his best behaviour with us, as everybody was, for we had no bickering among us, forward or aft. I only mean to say, he was not the man one would have chosen for a messmate, if choice there had been, one might even have gone a few points out of one's course to say, no, not him. But there was one curious inconsistency in Mr. Rark's. That was, that he took an astonishing interest in the child. He looked, and I may add, he was one of the last of men to care at all for a child or to care much for any human creature. Still, he went so far as to be habitually uneasy if the child was long on deck out of his sight. He was always afraid of her falling overboard, or falling down a hatchway, or of a block or what not coming down upon her from the rigging in the working of the ship, or of her getting some hurt or other. He used to look at her and touch her as if she was something precious to him. He was always solicitous about her not injuring her health and constantly entreated her mother to be careful of it. This was so much the more curious because the child did not like him, but used to shrink away from him, and would not even put out her hand to him without coaxing from others. I believe that every soul on board frequently noticed this, and not one of us understood it, however, 
It was such a plain fact that John Steadyman said more than once when old Mr. Rarks was not within earshot that if the Golden Mary felt a tenderness for the dear old gentleman she carried in her lap, she must be bitterly jealous of the Golden Lucy. Before I go any further with this narrative, I will state that our ship was a bark of 300 tonnes, carrying a crew of 18 men, a second mate in addition to John, a carpenter, an armourer or smith, and two apprentices, one a Scotch boy, poor little fella. We had three boats, the longboat, capable of carrying 25 men, the cutter, capable of carrying 15, and the surfboat, capable of carrying 10. I put down the capacity of these boats according to the numbers they were really meant to hold. We had tastes of bad weather, and headwinds of course, but on the whole we had as fine a run as any reasonable man could expect for sixty days. I then began to enter two remarks in the ship's log and in my journal. First, that there was an unusual and amazing quantity of ice. Second, that the nights were most wonderfully dark in spite of the ice. For five days and a half it seemed quite useless and hopeless to alter the ship's course so as to stand out of the way of this ice. I made what southing I could, but all that time we were beset by it. Mrs. Atherfield, after standing by me on deck once, looking for some time in an awed manner at the great bergs that surrounded us, said in a whisper, Oh, Captain Ravender, it looks as if the whole solid earth had changed into ice and broken up. I said to her, laughing, I don't wonder that it does to your inexperienced eyes, my dear. But I had never seen a twentieth part of the quantity, and in reality I was pretty much of her opinion. However, at 2pm on the afternoon of the sixth day, that is to say, when we were 66 days out, John Steadyman, who had gone aloft, sang out from the top that the sea was clear ahead. Before 4pm, a strong breeze springing up right astern, we were in open water at sunset. The breeze then freshening into half a gale of wind, and the Golden Mary being a very fast sailor, we went before the wind merrily all night. I had thought it impossible that it could be darker than it had been, until the sun, moon and stars should fall out of the heavens and time should be destroyed, but it had been next to light in comparison with what it was now. The darkness was so profound that looking into it was painful and oppressive, like looking without a ray of light into a dense black bandage put as close before the eyes as it could be without touching them. I doubled the lookout, and John and I stood in the bow side by side, never leaving it all night. Yet I should no more have known that he was near me when he was silent without putting out my arm and touching him than I should if he had turned in and been fast asleep below. We were not so much looking out, all of us, as listening to the utmost, both with our eyes and ears. Next day, I found that the mercury in the barometer, which had risen steadily since we cleared the ice, remained steady. I had had very good observations, with now and then the interruption of a day or so since our departure. 
I got the sun at noon and found that we were in latitude 58 degrees south, longitude 60 degrees west, off New South Shetland, in the neighbourhood of Cape Horn. We were 67 days out that day. The ship's reckoning was accurately worked and made up. The ship did her duty admirably. All on board were well, and all hands were as smart, efficient and contented as it was possible to be. When the night came on again as dark as before, it was the eighth night I had been on deck. Nor had I taken more than a very little sleep in the daytime, my station being always near the helm and often at it while we were among the ice. Few but those who have tried it can imagine the difficulty and pain of only keeping the eyes open, physically open, under such circumstances in such darkness. They get struck by the darkness and blinded by the darkness. They make patterns in it and they flash in it as if they had gone out of your head to look at you. On the turn of midnight, John Steadyman, who was alert and fresh, for I had always made him turn in by day, said to me, Captain Ravender, I entreat of you to go below. I am sure you can hardly stand and your voice is getting weak, sir. Go below and take a little rest. I'll call you if a block chafes. I said to John in answer, Well, well, John, let us wait until the turn of one o'clock before we talk about that. I had just had one of the ship's lanterns held up, that I might see how the night went by my watch, and it was then twenty minutes after twelve. At five minutes before one, John sang out to the boy to bring the lantern again, and when I told him once more what the time was, entreated and prayed of me to go below. Captain Ravender, says he, all's well. We can't afford to have you laid up for a single hour, and I respectfully and earnestly beg of you to go below. The end of it was that I agreed to do so on the understanding that if I failed to come up of my own accord within three hours I was to be punctually called. Having settled that, I left John in charge. But I called him to me once afterwards to ask him a question. I had been to look at the barometer and had seen the mercury still perfectly steady and had come up the companion again to take a last look about me if I can use such a word in reference to such darkness, when I thought that the waves, as the Golden Mary parted them and shook them off, had a hollow sound in them, something that I fancied was a rather unusual reverberation. I was standing by the quarter-deck rail on the starboard side when I called John aft to me and bade him listen. He did so with the greatest attention. Turning to me, he then said, Rely upon it, Captain Ravender, you have been without rest too long, and the novelty is only in the state of your sense of hearing. I thought so too by that time, and I think so now, though I can never know for absolute certain in this world whether it was or not. When I left John Steadyman in charge, the ship was still going at a great rate through the water. The wind still blew right astern. Though she was making great way, she was under shortened sail, and had no more than she could easily carry. All was snug, and nothing complained. 
There was a pretty sea running, but not a very high sea neither, not at all a confused one. I turned in, as we seamen say, all standing. The meaning of that is, I did not pull my clothes off, no, not even so much as my coat, though I did my shoes, for my feet were badly swelled with the deck. There was a little swing lamp alight in my cabin. I thought, as I looked at it before shutting my eyes, that I was so tired of darkness that I could have gone to sleep best in the middle of a million of flaming gaslights. That was the last thought I had before I went off, except the prevailing thought that I should not be able to get to sleep at all. I dreamed that I was back at Penrith again, and was trying to get round the church, which had altered its shape very much since I last saw it, and was cloven all down the middle of the steeple in a most singular manner. Why I wanted to get round the church I don't know, but I was so anxious to do it as if my life depended upon it. Indeed, I believe it did in the dream. For all that, I could not get round the church. I was still trying when I came against it with a violent shock and was flung out of my cot against the ship's side. Shrieks and a terrific outcry struck me far harder than the bruising timbers, and amidst sounds of grinding and crashing and a heavy rushing and breaking of water, sounds I understood too well, I made my way on deck. It was not an easy thing to do, for the ship heeled over frightfully and was beating in a furious manner. I could not see the men as I went forward, but I could hear that they were hauling in sail in disorder. I had my trumpet in my hand, and after directing and encouraging them in this till it was done, I hailed first John Steadyman, and then my second mate, Mr. William Rames. Both answered clearly and steadily. Now, I had practised them and all my crew, as I have ever made it a custom to practise all who sail with me, to take certain stations and wait my orders in case of any unexpected crisis. When my voice was heard hailing, and their voices were heard answering, I was aware through all the noises of the ship and sea, and all the crying of the passengers below, that there was a pause. Are you ready, Rames? Aye, aye, sir. Then light up for God's sake. In a moment he and another were burning blue lights, and the ship and all on board seemed to be enclosed in a mist of light under a great black dome. The light shone up so high that I could see the huge iceberg upon which we had struck, cloven at the top and down the middle exactly like Penrith Church in my dream. At the same moment I could see the watch last relieved, crowding up and down on deck. I could see Mrs. Atherfield and Miss Coleshaw thrown about on the top of the companion as they struggled to bring the child up from below. I could see that the masts were going with the shock and the beating of the ship. I could see the frightful breach stove in on the starboard side, half the length of the vessel, and the sheathing and timbers spurting up. I could see that the cutter was disabled in a wreck of broken fragments, and I could see every eye turned upon me. It is my belief 
that if there had been ten thousand eyes there, I should have seen them all with their different looks, and all this in a moment. But you must consider what a moment. I saw the men, as they looked at me, fall towards their appointed stations like good men and true. If she had not righted, they could have done very little there or anywhere but die. Not that it is little for a man to die at his post. I mean, they could have done nothing to save the passengers and themselves. Happily, however, the violence of the shock with which we had so determinedly borne down direct on that fatal iceberg, as if it had been our destination instead of our destruction, had so smashed and pounded the ship that she got off in this same instant and righted. I did not want the carpenter to tell me she was filling and going down. I could see and hear that. I gave Rames the word to lower the longboat and the surfboat, and I myself told off the men for each duty. Not one hung back or came before the other. I now whispered to John Steadyman, John, I stand at the gangway here to see every soul on board safe over the side. You shall have the next post of honour, and shall be the last but one to leave the ship. Bring up the passengers, and range them behind me, and put what provision and water you can get at in the boats. Cast your eye forward, John, and you'll see you have not a moment to lose. My noble fellows got the boats over the side as orderly as I ever saw boats lowered with any sea running, and, when they were launched, Two or three of the nearest men in them as they held on, rising and falling with the swell, called out, looking up at me, "'Captain Ravender, if anything goes wrong with us and you are saved, remember we stood by you.' "'We'll all stand by one another ashore yet. Please God, my lads,' says I. "'Hold on bravely, and be tender with the women.' The women were an example to us. They trembled very much, but they were quiet and perfectly collected. "'Kiss me, Captain Ravender,' says Mrs. Atherfield, "'and God in heaven bless you, you good man.' "'My dear,' says I, "'those words are better for me than a lifeboat.' I held her child in my arms till she was in the boat, and then kissed the child and handed her safe down. I now said to the people in her, "'You have got your freight, my lads, all but me, "'and I am not coming yet a while.' pull away from the ship, and keep off. That was the longboat. Old Mr. Rocks was one of her compliment, and he was the only passenger who had greatly misbehaved since the ship struck. Others had been a little wild, which was not to be wondered at, and not very blamable. But he had made a lamentation and uproar which it was dangerous for the people to hear, as there is always contagion in weakness and selfishness. His incessant cry had been that he must not be separated from the child, that he couldn't see the child, and that he and the child must go together. He had even tried to wrest the child out of my arms that he might keep her in his. Mr. Rarks, I said to him when it came to that, I have a loaded pistol in my pocket, and if you don't stand out of the gangway and keep perfectly quiet, I shall shoot you through the heart if you have got one. Says he, You won't do murder, Captain Ravender. No, sir, says I. 
I won't murder forty-four people to humour you, but I'll shoot you to save them. After that he was quiet, and stood shivering a little way off until I named him to go over the side. The longboat being cast off, the surf boat was soon filled. There only remained aboard the Golden Mary, John Mullion, the man who had kept on burning the blue lights, and who had lighted every new one at every old one before it went out, as quietly as if he had been at an illumination, John Steadyman, and myself. I hurried those two into the surf boat, called to them to keep off, and waited with a grateful and relieved heart for the longboat to come and take me in, if she could. I looked at my watch, and it showed me by the blue light, ten minutes past two. They lost no time. As soon as she was near enough, I swung myself into her and called to the men, With a will, lads! She's reeling! We were not an inch too far out of the inner vortex of her going down when, by the blue light which John Mullion still burnt in the bow of the surf boat, we saw her lurch and plunge to the bottom head foremost. The child cried, weeping wildly, Oh, the dear Golden Mary! Oh, look at her! Save her! Save the poor Golden Mary! And then the light burnt out, and the black dome seemed to come down upon us. And with the sinking of the ship, we're now at the halfway point of Dickens's part of The Wreck of the Golden Mary. And if you'd like to hear the second half, there'll be a second podcast to follow. One thing that did occur to me, and this isn't Dickens looking back, it's just a coincidence. You've just heard that after the collision with the iceberg and the evacuation of the ship, the last time Captain Ravender looks at his watch, it shows him that the time is ten minutes past two. And not long after that, of course, the Golden Mary goes to the bottom. I think I'm right in saying that uh, when the Titanic sank, it was not long after ten past two. Thank you for listening.